Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad to have you with us. If you could find a seat, we'll begin. And I also want to take a minute to welcome those of you that are joining us online. We're glad that you're with us as well. We're here to worship the Lord this morning. So I'm glad you're here to do that. So a little overview of the service. We're going to begin by singing a couple of songs that I chose that will take us into God's presence and provide a glimpse of heaven. So we'll do that first. Then after the announcements, we'll sing some songs that remind us that um, God helps us in the here and now, that he is the good shepherd, the metaphor that Scripture uses of him as a good shepherd that cares for us, watches out for us, and is over us. So um, let me just open in a brief prayer, and then I'll ask you to stand, and we'll begin our service. Lord. We thank you that you um, have brought these people into this place uh, and into your presence, and we're glad that you're here as well. We pray that you will be uh, pleased with the worship and the adoration and the praise that we bring you this morning, and we pray that your spirit would speak to us, that we would hear from you as well today. So thank you for your presence and for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and and sing these songs of praise.
You may be seated. Good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we're glad you're with us this morning, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. It's just a joy to be gathered here with you this morning as we come together to, to worship God and to learn from Him. If you are new or visiting with us, just a little bit about our church. So we we want to be about three things as a church. We want to be about reaching people with the gospel and growing to be like Christ and serving others. Kind of our three, three kind of main focuses as a church. Um, in your bulletin, if you grab one of those on your way in this morning, there's kind of ways outlined that we can do each of those things. So when it comes to the growth or the token discussion group starting tomorrow at the coach's house, um, Nate and Betsy coach's house, that um, you would be welcome to join and um, just discuss some of our token. Um, there's also ways to serve in the church. If you're interested in serving, um, we would love to have you come alongside and serve. A couple other announcements of things coming up. So on Thursday, October 28th, Women's Common Ground will meet um, and gather here and have a time of fellowship for that. So we'd invite the women of the church to be a part of that as well. One other announcement, we want to uh, just extend our, our condolences to Nona Sarush and the Sarush family and uh, Ed Sarush passed away last week. We want to keep them in our thoughts and prayers. Um, as, we, <clears throat> as we continue our time of worship this morning, if one of the ways you want to participate in worship is through giving. There are a few ways to do that. You can drop... Uh, and offerings in the boxes that are mounted to the back wall, or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. Um, with that, let's pray together as we continue in our time of worship. Father, we come and we thank you for just a chance to gather together here as your people in this place. You have called each of us. You have been at work in each of our lives, all through our lives, to bring us here now, whether you we're sitting in this sanctuary, whether we're watching online, whether we've followed you for a long time, or whether we're just here for some other reason, God. Whatever reason may be, like we are here because you have brought us to this place. God, as we come before you this morning as we worship you, as we hear your word, would we come with an awareness that you are at work, that you are desiring to do something in each of our lives this morning as we worship you, as we hear your word, that you have something for each of us, that you have work to be done in each of our lives to conform us more and more into the image of your Son. So God, we pray that you would just help our minds to be clear that we would be able to come before you not distracted by the cares of the world. We could come, we could sing praise to you with our minds fixed on you. We could hear your word and what you have to say to us with our minds attune what you have to say. That as a result, we would leave here glorifying your name and we leave here more and looking more and more like Jesus than we did when we came in. But we pray for 
for Nona Sarush and the Sarush family. We pray for other people in our church family who are wrestling with pain and hardship and just the results of living in a fallen and broken world. We pray that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort. You would bring healing where it's your will to bring healing to those who need healing. That you would be at work even in the midst of hard moments for people in our church to reveal more and more of your goodness and glory to us. God, as we just sang, there will be a day when pain and suffering and death will be no more. In hard moments, would you help us to look forward to that day when you set all things right. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in our worship.
worship, we're going to read together Psalm 23. So in honor of that and for the last song, would you please stand? Let's read together unison. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
forward to that day when we do dwell in your house forever. We bless your holy name day in and day out as we dwell with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, we, we look forward to that day. Would you, would you prepare us for that day? Would you help us to honor you and glorify you? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Disregard the kid. <laughs> so in, in 1995, kind of a long time ago, but 1995, J.K. Rowling was an out-of-work wannabe author living off of welfare in the United Kingdom. And she, she had just finished the manuscript of her first novel, and she wrote that novel on an old manual typewriter, because that's all she could afford at that time. And so in the hopes of emerging from poverty, she started to send off her manuscript to different publishers. So one at a time, over the course of a year, 12 different publishers rejected that manuscript. It's not worthy of publication. So finally, she sent it off one more time to a 13th publisher, a small, tiny little publisher named Bloomsbury. And that publisher, Bloomsbury, agreed to publish her work. At that time, Bloomsbury was trading on the London Stock Exchange for about like, 22 pounds per share. And they gave Rowling a, a $1,500 advance for her work. And even then, after they gave her that advance, the publisher, or her, her editor at Bloomsbury, advised her not, or to find a day job because like, you can't make any money selling kids' books. That was their advice. And so, and so Bloomsbury publishes this book as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in the UK. And originally they published 1,000 copies of that book. 500 of them were earmarked to go to libraries because libraries will take anything. Right? So it's like 500 copies for general circulation. If you can find one of those original 1,000 copies today, the first printing editions, you can sell it for up to $7,000 online. And so the reason those first editions are so popular is because like, the Harry Potter franchise has gone on to be one of the most valuable franchises in the world. All told, Rowling would write seven Harry Potter books, and those seven books would sell over 500 million copies worldwide. And those seven books would be made into eight movies, which would make nearly $8 billion at the worldwide box office. And as far as not being able to make any money writing children's books, in 2004, Forbes named Rowling the first person to ever become a billionaire by being an author. And Bloomsbury, that, that small publisher that was trading for 22 pounds, is now the seventh largest publisher in the UK. It's larger than names like Oxford University Press. It's larger than Simon & Schuster. And when I checked on Wednesday, it was trading for 337 pounds per share, like over a 100% increase. And so the reason I share all this, like, Rowling's experience of being rejected time and time and time again highlights an important truth for us. Namely, that rejection 
Like, doesn't always mean you're wrong, right? Rejection doesn't always mean you're a failure. Sometimes the problem's with the one doing the rejecting and not with you. If you really believe in the thing that's being rejected, then when you face rejection, like, you keep pressing forward, like, in search of people who will believe in your story, in her case. And as Christians, like, we have a story to tell that will often face rejection, but what we see in today's passage, in Luke chapter 9, is that like, we are called, even when we're rejected in sharing that story, to keep pressing forward, to keep telling that story, to keep looking for people who will believe in it. Like, rejection comes with the territory, but that's not an invitation to pack up and quit. If we really believe the story of Jesus and God's grace towards us through him, then we have a story to tell that is true and it is good and then we will not let rejection stop us from sharing that story. So this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 51 to 62. If you have a a Bible, I invite you to open there. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. So this week we're in Luke 9. This is our first week back in the book of Luke after we took five weeks off to look through five different psalms in the Old Testament. So we're back in Luke. We've been kind of making our way through Luke for nearly a year now, on and off. Back in Luke. And the reason we kind of took a break where we did to start that psalm series is that this passage in Luke, Luke 9, starting at verse 51, really starts a new section in the book of Luke. It really starts a whole new focus. And as part of this new section, there are kind of two main shifts that take place in the book of Luke. In the first shift is that in the first eight chapters of Luke, Jesus is mostly traveling around the countryside in Galilee. But starting here, there's a shift, and Jesus now focuses on traveling towards Jerusalem. We'll see in a minute, like verse 51 says, that Jesus sets out resolutely for Jerusalem. And that statement, that Jesus sets out resolutely for Jerusalem, really set the stage for the next ten chapters in the book of Luke. Before that, Jesus is going from town to town, kind of haphazardly throughout Galilee. But starting here, Jesus starts one long journey towards Jerusalem, where he will meet his ultimate fate. That's why we're calling this part of the series, A Journey to Jerusalem. Because it's what Jesus is doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he will meet his ultimate fate. The second shift that takes place in these chapters compared to the earlier ones is that there's a shift in the type of people Jesus is primarily concerned with. In the first part of Luke, Jesus spends a lot of time interacting with the crowd, people who didn't necessarily believe in him yet. And so he's doing a lot of miracles and he's interacting with the crowds. But in this section, Jesus kind of shifts his focus, and his focus becomes the disciples. And his focus is not helping the disciples learn what it looks like to follow after him. So as a result, this section contains far more, far more teaching and parables and far fewer miracles than the previous section. Lastly, this section is also really important just in our overall kind of knowledge of the Bible because it contains a lot of stuff that it's only found in Luke. A lot of what we've looked at in the first eight and a half chapters of 
Luke is also in Matthew and Mark. But starting here in chapter 9, Luke writes about a lot of stuff that only he writes about. So there's things in these chapters that we wouldn't have if not for Luke. Things like, like the parable of the good Samaritan right? and the, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? These are famous, well-known stories, and if Luke had not recorded them, like, we would not have them. Right? So that's kind of the big picture overview of where we're headed over the next number of weeks as we go through this section of Luke. But today we're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. So that am I let's read. We read this. At the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So what we really see in these verses is that following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, will mean two things. First, being a disciple of Jesus will mean being rejected at times. Being rejected by the world. But not only does it mean being rejected, sometimes following Jesus also means rejecting. Like We're the ones doing the rejecting, especially rejecting worldly values. It goes both ways. Right? We will be rejected, but also we must reject some of the values of the world. Following Jesus means both rejection of the world or by the world and rejecting the world. But before we look more closely, I want to look at really what it looks like to be rejected and what it looks like to do the rejecting. But before we get there, let's look a little bit at what it means to follow Jesus. In verse 51, as we said, like we read, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And literally, the Greek words there say that Jesus set his face right, toward Jerusalem. Which is an expression that means, basically, that like, his focus was resolutely set on going to Jerusalem. If you were to, if you were to map the events in Luke from, from here on out, like you would discover that this journey to Jerusalem is not, not actually like a straight line. Like it doesn't just go straight to Jerusalem. Right? It's not straight point A to point B. Right? But his focus is on getting to Jerusalem from here on out. It's focused on getting to Jerusalem because of what awaits him there. Right? And he does, he is well aware of 
what ultimately awaits him in Jerusalem. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, so 30 verses before this, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And where do the chief priests and the scribes and the elders reside? In Jerusalem. So Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. And now that time has come for him to face that destiny. And this is important. Like it's not just for Jesus himself, right? But also for those who, who follow Jesus. They're going to follow after him on this path. They're going to follow him to Jerusalem. And in Luke 9:22, Jesus says, "If you want to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me." So to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, is to follow him on his path to Jerusalem with all that entails, right? up to and including following Jesus to death. Right? That's what carrying your cross means. But even short of death, right? even before Jesus makes it to Jerusalem, right? the path of following Jesus is not smooth and easy. And therefore, like we shouldn't expect it. We follow Jesus for our path to always be smooth and easy. We see a clear example of this in verse 52 through 56 that we just read. Remember, Jesus is rejected by a Samaritan village. Verse 52 and 53 we read, And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So Jesus had been spending most of his time in Galilee, which is in the far north of Israel up until this point. He's way up north, in the northern tip of Israel. But now, as he sets out for Jerusalem, he has to get to the southern end of Israel, where Jerusalem is. And right in between Galilee and Jerusalem in the south is this place called Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans, like, do not get along, to say the least. And like, as is often the case, whenever two groups of people don't like each other, there's all kinds of historical reasons for that. But like, the fundamental reason that the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along is they disagree on the proper place to worship God. And the Jewish people believed that God's worship was centered in Jerusalem. And so, like the Samaritans, they didn't like Jews ever. Right? But they especially found Jews who were on their way to Jerusalem to be extra infuriating. Right? They, they're going to this place of false worship. It's like later today, right? the Packers play the Bears. It's like one of the oldest, most heated rivalries in the NFL. And, like, and if you're a Packer fan, you're just like out in the grocery store. And like you see someone wearing like a bear's gear or something, like, like you might get a little like animosity well up inside you, right? But you can probably deal with that, like if you just kind of see them out and about. But if you're like going to the Packer game like at Lambeau Field, and like you start walking in with someone who's wearing bear gear, like there's like a different level of animosity if you feel towards someone in bear gear like in Lambeau than you do like in the grocery store, right? Because now they're like in the place where the Packers 
are, right? And like, how dare they come to this sacred place? Not that we would say that because we don't believe football fields are sacred places, but, you know, we, other people. <laughs> and so, like, there's just this whole new level of animosity when, like, the person you don't like is close to the heart of the reason you don't like them. And that's how the, the Samaritans felt about the Jewish people if they traveled to Jerusalem. Right? They didn't like them any of the time, but they especially didn't like them when they were headed to Jerusalem. And in fact, that animosity was so bad that like many Jews who were, lived in Galilee, when they wanted to travel to Jerusalem, would go like way out of their way. They would cross the Jordan River, go over to the other side, go around, all the way around Samaria, and then cross back over the Jordan River, when they got near to Jerusalem, just to avoid Samaria and the Samaritans. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he, he heads into Samaria, and he willingly faces rejection. And as he does that, he also shows us the proper way to respond when we face rejection. And when rejection comes, James and John like, immediately want to get retribution. And there's a reason Jesus called these two the sons of thunder. They have this like fiery, zealous nature to them. So James and John, they see the rejection and they say, Lord, do you want to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And if they say this, like James and John probably have in mind a scene from the book of 1 Kings where Elijah calls down fire on some of his enemies. And they're thinking, like, Lord, they, they rejected you. They dishonored you. And you're, you're the Messiah. Like, let's get them. But Jesus says, no. And instead of rebuking the Samaritans for rejecting him, he rebuked James and John for having that vengeful mindset. And one of the, one of the consistent messages throughout the New Testament is that like, there is coming a time for judgment. There is coming a time when wrongs will be judged. But that time is not right now. At the very beginning of Luke, way back a year ago we read about this, but Jesus launched into public ministry by quoting from the book of Isaiah. And and there it's written, that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and and release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just all like great things, right? Give sight to the blind and free the captives. Those are all great things. But the interesting thing is Jesus stops quoting Isaiah in the middle of a sentence. He says. The rest of that sentence in the book of Isaiah says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So when Jesus is describing his ministry, he leaves out the part in Isaiah about the vengeance of God. And the reason he does that is not because there will never be a time for God's vengeance. Like there will be, like at the second coming of Jesus. But Jesus didn't mention it there because he's describing what his ministry during his first coming is going to look like. And his ministry during his first coming is not about vengeance and judgment. 
Instead, it's about giving people a chance to respond to Him. Now, second Peter, Peter's writing to some people who wish God would do more to judge his, their enemies. And he, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like, here's the point I want to make in all this. Like, if we're following Jesus, we will face rejection from the world. And when we face that rejection, it can be really easy to want to seek retribution or seek payback for that rejection. And it can even be easy to make that retribution-seeking sound really holy. Right? Even though really the real reason we want to seek retribution is for our own like, satisfaction. Like, maybe I'm the only one who like, comes up with like, holy sounding excuses to do what I want to do. But I don't think I am. Like, we tend to do this. We try to couch our own desire in godly language. And so when we have like, this desire for personal vengeance sometimes, and we say things like, oh, I'm, I'm standing up for God, or I'm defending the Lord's honor, or I'm yeah, defending God. But God doesn't need you to do that. He is plenty capable of defending His own honor. And in those moments when we feel the need to seek retribution or to get vengeance on those who mistreat us because of our faith, we would do, we would do well to remember Paul's words in Romans 12 when he writes, I do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, if it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if we're following Jesus, if we're Jesus' disciples, then we will face rejection like Jesus did. And when that happens, it's important that we respond to that rejection in the way that Jesus teaches us and shows us how to respond. Namely, with patience and with forbearance and with grace and love for our enemies. Following Jesus will mean facing rejection. But it will also mean rejecting some of the values of the world. In verses 57 through 62 of this passage, we see three people contemplate what it looks like to follow Jesus. But standing in their way of committing to fully following after Him are these worldly values that they will have to forego if they want to truly follow after Jesus. The first of these is in verses 57 and 58 where we read, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so following Jesus means rejecting, first of all, some of the comfort the world has to offer. It may not mean living a nomadic, homeless lifestyle like Jesus does. Like probably most of us here live in like fairly comfortable homes. 
But if we follow Jesus and we take seriously his command, each and every one of us will invariably have to reject some of the comforts that the world has to offer. That maybe because we take Jesus seriously when he tells us to give generously, that we'll have less money to spend on worldly comforts. That may mean, it may be because like, following Jesus means turning down more lucrative jobs or not being willing to do what you need to do to get a more lucrative job. Maybe because like Jesus called us to go to some hard part of the world as missionaries where many of those options are not, many of the comforts of the world are not even options. Whatever the cause, following Jesus will always mean rejecting the world's mindset that you should do whatever you can to do what is best for you and for your own comfort. Jesus calls us to reject that way of thinking. The second example of rejecting the world values is found in verses 59 and 60, where we read, Jesus said to another man, follow me. That man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the, bed, let the dead bury their dead, and you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And there's like sometimes, and like I read my Bible, right, and there's just like a, almost like an audible like break screech, like, did Jesus just say that? Like, caught me to stop in my tracks, right? And like, this is one of those times, like, this just seems harsh, right? At least to me, if I'm being honest, like, it just seems harsh, like, why didn't Jesus, like, let this man go and bury his dad? Like, if the Old Testament even puts a high value on, like, children taking care of their parents when they die, and like, why is Jesus doing this? But here's the thing. I always picture this scenario happening, like as the man's dad is already dead, or like at least very, very near death. But like most scholars think that actually this man's dad is still very much alive. Because if he were already dead, Jesus would not be out here on the streets having this conversation with Jesus. He'd already be at home taking care of the funeral preparations. So like maybe the father was getting a little bit old, or maybe he was sick, but like he probably wasn't close to death. Which means that for this man to delay following Jesus until his dad dies would mean a delay of an indeterminate amount of length. And in the meantime, he could be doing what Jesus calls him to do here, is to, and going and sharing the message of the kingdom of God. But every day he delays following Jesus is a day that people don't hear the message of the kingdom because of this man. Lots of scholars also think there's like another factor here in like why the man wants to wait for a father to die, and that's like when a dad dies, he probably gets an inheritance of some kind. But if he's not around when his father dies, then he probably won't get it. And so, so if possible, this man's like waiting for a father to die, so he had the security of that inheritance before he does something risky like following after Jesus. So that way, like, if this whole following Jesus thing doesn't work out, like, he always has the inheritance to fall back on. And we can kind of be prone to do the same thing. We can kind of put off fully committing, fully following Jesus until our, our life circumstances make it a little bit easier, a little bit better 
Like you'll, we can think things like, oh, I'll, I'll give generously when I have a little more money. Right? Or I'll, I'll consider moving to a new place that I feel God calling me to, like after the kids are grown and out of the house. That way it's not a hard transition for them. Right? Or I'll, I'll tell my coworker or my friend about Jesus once I have a little bit stronger relationship with them so our friendship's more secure. But the thing is, that there will never be a perfectly convenient time to do the hard thing Jesus calls us to do. He's calling you to do something. You need to reject the world's thinking that says, like, just wait. And instead, like, respond today. The final example of rejecting the world of found in verses 61 and 62, <clears throat> which they... Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is, sit, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's, a previous to the, that's a similar to the previous example and that has to do with like, honoring family. Right? And it's easy to forget, at least for me, like this is an era before... FaceTime and text messages and email and phones. Right? We're like, to follow Jesus meant to lose all contact with the family, not knowing if or when you would be able to talk to them again. So it's a big commitment then to follow after Jesus. And so it seems kind of extreme. Like, why wouldn't Jesus let this man go and say goodbye to his family? But I think, in this case, like the extreme nature of the command is the point. Like if, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, then following Jesus must be our number one concern above everything else. And to highlight this, Jesus intentionally chooses, I think, one of the, the most extreme examples he could think of. Right? I, don't, I don't think here in these verses, Jesus is saying... Like, it's never okay to attend the funeral of a parent. Or that everyone who follows him must cut off contact with their family. Like, what Jesus is saying is that when a situation arises where you must choose, for whatever reason, between God and family, or you must choose between God and some other earthly obligation, then God must win. Like, 99.9% of the time, probably, like, you can love your family well and follow Jesus well simultaneously. But Jesus' point here is that at that point, 1% of the time, when those two things can't coexist, then following Jesus must take the priority. Obedience to Jesus must take precedence over all else. So between the pain of rejection, the following Jesus promises to bring, and the challenges of rejecting some of the values of the world, like it can be fair to ask the question, why follow Jesus? And there's, there's any number of good reasons, good answers to that question. Like we've talked in earlier sermons about how following Jesus leads us into the best life even here and now. How God is our creator, knows what's best for us, and he's called us to live a joyful life, and he knows how to lead us into that. That's a the good reason to follow Jesus. But it's not the ultimate reason. And the ultimate reason for following Jesus is 
following him is where following him ends. Like oftentimes I think about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, and I think about Jesus traveling to the place where he will be crucified and he will die. But maybe for the first time ever, I noticed as I read this passage this time that like that's not what Luke focuses on. Verse 51 again says, At the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke says, at the time approached, not for his death, not for his crucifixion, not even for his resurrection. Luke says that at the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. That was Luke's emphasis. Luke will focus on Jesus' ascension into glory. That's why he set out for Jerusalem. Right? And that ultimately is the, it's where the path that Jesus walks ends. Like Jesus' path ends in glory. And so for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus who are on that path following after him, we can have confidence that no matter what pain may come from rejection, no matter what trials may come when we reject the values of the world, if we follow Jesus, our journey ends in glory. Where we spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And eternity and glory with Him will make all the pain and trials of this life seem like nothing in comparison. But the only way of, of getting there, the only way of attaining that glory is by following Jesus. By being a disciple of Jesus. You can't get to that glory on your own. And the first step of being a follower of Jesus is believing in Him. You can't effectively follow someone you don't trust, that you don't have faith in. But following Jesus means first believing that He came, right? believing that He walked this path of rejection. And yet despite all the rejection He faced, He never sinned. That on the cross, He died to forgive us of our sins. So if you're, you're here, you're hearing this, and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never believed in Jesus and that He did that for you, I'd first urge you and invite you to do that. Not because like, trusting in Jesus leads to an easy life. The life of following Jesus is marked by rejection and hardship. But I'd invite you to trust in Jesus because that life ends in glory. If you're here today and you have trusted in Jesus, that I would just invite you to consider two questions as you leave here today. First question is this. Do I allow a fear of rejection to prevent me from following Jesus in all the ways that I could? Does the fear of rejection prevent me from following Jesus in all the ways that I could or should? And then the second question, are there things that I value over and above Jesus that keep me from following Jesus in the ways that I could or should? Are there things that I value that stand in the way of me being fully committed to following after Jesus? And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, and if you're honest, I think the answer probably is yes, at least some of the time, 
And he certainly is for me. Like, if the answer to either of those is yes, then the solution is not to like wallow in guilt and shame and commit yourself to trying harder to will yourself to be better about following Jesus. If that's not the solution, that won't get you anywhere. If the solution is you've if you see yourself falling short and following Jesus the way He called us to, is to run to Jesus. To confess your fear of rejection. To confess your worldly values. To repent of those things. Trusting that Jesus has already died to pay the penalty for those sins. He's already forgiven you. Forgiven you for the, all the times you've feared rejection. And it's, allowed, and it's stopped you from obeying Him. He's already forgiven you for all the times that you've valued something over and above Him. He's not waiting for you to get your act together before He'll work with you. He's already done all that is needed for your sins to be forgiven. So run to Him. Ask Him to help you become more like Him. And above all, ask Him to help you keep your eyes fixed on the glory that awaits each of us who have trusted in Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what You teach us, how to live, that You have given us instruction and guidance in how to live our lives day by day. Yeah, for each of us here who are disciples of Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, we confess that we time and again fall short of living the life you have called us to live. There are times when our fear of rejection causes us to live in ways that do not fully honor you. There are times when our worldly desires and our worldly values get in the way of us being as faithful as we should be. And we confess those things that we are so thankful that Jesus has already died and already taken care of those sins that despite our fear, despite our worldly values, we can come to you knowing that we are forgiven, that we are right in your eyes. We can come to you asking you to help us become more and more like Jesus. Before we thank you that through his death, and the cross through His resurrection and through His ascension, Jesus promises us that there is coming a day when we will no more wrestle, no more fight with sin in our own lives. We will no more suffer the effects of sin in a broken and fallen world. There will be no more suffering and pain and death. And He will set all things right. God, as we live the life you have called us to live here and now, would you enable us to do that? And would you keep our eyes fixed on the future glory you have promised to each and every one of us who has 
trusted in Jesus. And would it give us fuel and a desire to honor you and glorify you in all that we do. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you, you go from here today, would you go desiring to follow Jesus wherever he may call you? You are dismissed.